If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Tor Anderson hated the father of his granddaughter. His daughter, Freya, had taken up company with a man that Tor despised and he was unwilling to set aside his contempt. He wasn't shy about showing it either. Tor Anderson really was a terrible father. He knew it. You see, the Andersons had once fought the Dark Presence within the lake. In 1976, about six years after Tom Zane had vanished into the lake, it sought them out as they were practicing their music in a field. They fought the Dark Presence, they won, but it fractured their minds. But let's talk more about the Andersons as a family. You see, there was something very special about their bloodline. In a world of para-utilitarians and altered world events and paranatural energies, the Andersons were simply called seers. They could find the truth, see through people's lies, essentially creep into their minds to see what they were holding back. It made it possible for them to know the unknowable, to reach out into the secrets of other people. And as a family bound with that same power, they could commune with one another in their minds, like a form of telepathy. Tor and Odin both used this power to meddle with things that they really shouldn't have, they admit. They were troublemakers through and through, but Tor was definitely the more difficult of the two. And his daughter, Freya, viewed this power of theirs as something dangerous, not something to be taken lightly. She was raised in a turbulent home with a raging drunkard of a rock and roll father, but she went on to become a strong-willed woman, graced with common sense. In 1988, Freya had a baby, a girl that she named Saga, and the father was a man who would eventually become known as Warlandor. And Warlandor, as Tor put it, was a complicated bastard. Maybe paranatural entity, maybe powerful para-utilitarian, maybe interdimensional being, maybe just a goddamn alien, who knows with Mr. Dor. But Tor hated him, and he wasn't shy about expressing it. Sometime in 1988, it's not known if Saga was born yet, the Anderson brothers and Warlandor were at Cauldron Lake, having a bit of a heated discussion. An unknown pact was made between the two parties. If the Anderson brothers helped Dor with something, then he would leave. Warlandor would leave this world and cease all contact with the Anderson family, abandon Freya, abandon his daughter, and return to where he probably belonged, the place between realities. Dor agreed, but with one stipulation, he would stay away until they all came to him. Dor took Odin's right eyeball to forever serve as a reminder of their deal. Lightning struck Warlandor, and he vanished into the unknowable place in between worlds and realities. It was most likely Freya who filed a missing persons report on Warlandor. She raised baby Saga on her own, but it was the following year, 1989, that Tor told her the truth of what actually happened with Dor, and she could not forgive her father for it. She took Saga and left Bright Falls. She too vanished. She would not allow her daughter to be raised in the shadow of a drunkard grandfather with anger problems and a disrespect for his own powers. It broke Odin's heart to see her and Saga go, but he understood why they left, and Tor would eventually understand too. Her absence and his own guilt over the life that he had forced upon her ate Tor up. Saga grew up believing that her father had died when she was a baby, and that it was just her and Freya. When Saga got a bit older, she started to experience her strange Anderson seer powers, but Freya did not want her daughter to develop those abilities or know the truth of her family's bloodline. So she told Saga that it was just her imagination. She discouraged her from indulging in it or exploring it. Saga grew up to live a pretty normal life. She believed that her amazing ability to sniff out the truth and put together impossible clues was just her intuition. Freya passed away. It's not known when or how. 
Saga went on to become an agent with the FBI, she married a man named David, and had a daughter of her own named Logan. Now we get to jump a little bit ahead. It's 2010. Alan Wake has vanished into Cauldron Lake, presumably dead. The Federal Bureau of Control has arrived and they do what you would expect of any government agency. They put up fences. They started watching and studying the lake. The general public was kept away. Animals started avoiding going near it. Even birds wouldn't fly over it. Three more people went missing that year alone. A dentist, a teacher, and a store owner. None of them were connected to one another. None of them were connected to Alan Wake. There were no signs of where they could have gone to. And that same year, the cousin of Sheriff Sarah Breaker, a fellow named Tim Breaker, started having exquisitely vivid dreams about a man that Tor Anderson would recognize as Warlandor. But he had no idea who this person could have been. Tim worked in law enforcement as well, and he had a sketch made up of the guy. He circulated the picture, tried to see if anyone had any leads about it, but it wasn't until he contacted his cousin Sarah in Bright Falls that he got an answer. She identified the sketch as Warlandor, a man missing from the area since 1988. Tim Breaker moved to Bright Falls, and in 2012, he took over as sheriff after his cousin Sarah went back to work for the government in another agency. Tim was all in on anything supernatural. It was one of his favorite topics. The strange events that surrounded Bright Falls fascinated him, and he never gave up trying to find out more about Warlandor. That same year, in 2012, the body of the dentist was found. But the state of the body it was really odd. For spending two years in supposedly a body of water, it was mostly intact. Cause of death wasn't drowning either, it was chest trauma. And they were found in a shallow grave. Someone had put them in there, but their bodies showed signs of being waterlogged. Like they were bloated to hell, but again, they hadn't died of drowning. You see, Cauldron Lake had long been watched by locals, who knew that there was something dangerous within its unending depths. They were known internally as the Torchbearers, and after the 2010 incident with the writer Alan Wake, their watch became tireless. They would not allow anything from the lake to compromise the safety of their home. Their methods at first were clumsy, like they were feeling around for answers in a pitch black room. When the dentist came out of the waters in 2012, he was a taken, and the locals did what they had to do. They killed it. Twin brothers Ilmo and Yako Koskala rose to leadership positions. They were highly involved in their community, and they were constantly plotting endeavors to bring tourists into the area. They wanted to keep their small towns alive and well, and that meant hunting anything that came out of the lake. The older population wasn't able to contribute as much. The economy was struggling. The young folks weren't sticking around. So the Koskala brothers patched up as many holes as they could. In 2013, the Koskala brothers created the Cult of the Tree. And the point of the cult was to be a local boogeyman. Something to be feared by outsiders, to keep them away from the lake and the surrounding forests. Away from where they searched out and hunted the Taken. After all, what real cult calls themselves a cult? It's silly but it was effective, especially at night people stayed away from the lake and the forests. That same year, the Koskala brothers found a Federal Bureau of Control facility called the Lake House. See, government fences didn't really mean a lot to them. Fences were just a small problem that bolt cutters could fix. They infiltrated the Lake House and made off with some FBC files related to the lake. They found out about Rose Marigold, the waitress from the diner. They found a file related to the cult of the tree, which called them disorganized and a low threat. They found files that told them exactly what the Taken were, what the clicker was, how they could use it to ritualistically kill the Taken. They learned who Alan Wake was, and they believed that he was the source of the evil within the lake. 
The cult decided that should Wake ever appear outside that lake, they would kill him, stop the darkness at its source. The cult began tapping and commandeering FBC equipment to monitor the lake themselves and track anything that came out of it. They found manuscript pages, taken, and one fateful day, they found the goddamn clicker. They recognized it as an object of power, one that they could use. They learned of a ritual process using the clicker which would kill anyone who came out of the lake infected with the darkness. Over the years, they would become effective protectors of Bright Falls and its surrounding communities. One terrible night, Ilmo Koskala had a vicious nightmare. He saw himself covered in blood, murdering all around him, killing his twin brother in cold blood. But upon waking, Ilmo rejected the evil he felt trying to enter him. The dark presence had targeted him and he resisted. His mother had raised her sons to have honor backbone. The dark presence passed over the Koskala brothers, seeking weaker targets. Ilmo and Yako knew that something terrible was approaching and they did everything in their power to ready their community for the coming war with the darkness. Over the next decade, things grew complicated. Things were nudged along, so to speak. The Federal Bureau of Control continued to study the lake, trying a number of odd experiments to recreate reality-impacting events through art, at one point even using nursery rhymes in tandem with rituals. Rose Marigold kept vigil over the lake, ever obsessed with the idea of Alan Wake and being his muse. She would receive directions from Alan from the lake, though, effectively becoming his Lady of the Light, what Cynthia Weaver was once to Thomas Zane. She would have a role to play in the coming story, but until then, she ran her Alan Wake fan site, wrote very strange fan fictions, worked at the Oh Dear Diner, and used a rifle on any taken she found out in the forest. By 2014, Odin and Tor were ready to be retired, and it was Barry Wheeler himself who saw to their care. After Alan vanished, he'd served as their band manager, getting them out into the world for one more big tour, but after a few years, it was time for them to rest. He established the Old Gods Foundation in Bright Falls and purchased the old home of Thomas Zane, who is widely known as a filmmaker, but more on that later. Zane's old home was converted into a nursing home called Valhalla. It became the home of Odin and Tor, and then eventually Cynthia Weaver, Pat Maine, and many other aged folk around Bright Falls. Rose Marigold took a part-time job there as a caretaker and protector. Barry didn't stay, though. He went back to New York for a while. There, he paid regular visits to Alice Wake. Her life was in ruins after Alan was gone. There was so much pain and confusion, and functioning for her was nigh impossible, and understandably so. She went through a traumatic experience, and she felt so much guilt over Alan's supposed death. And it's here where we begin to dip our toe into what's happening in the dark place. You ready, friend? It was about 2017 when Alice began to be haunted by Alan. She couldn't remember what had happened at Cauldron Lake, her time in the dark place, but when it was dark, she could hear the clacking of a typewriter in Alan's voice, but those hauntings, they turned violent. It was Alan, yet it was a monster. Alice turned to the FBC. They were still investigating Bright Falls, and she needed help. At this time, Zachariah Trench was still the acting director of the FBC. Dr. Casper Darling was still the head of research. This was all well before Jesse Faden arrived on the scene, well before the Hiss invasion. She doesn't know how, but when Alice left their offices, she remembered everything about the dark place. She remembered seeing Alan descend into the lake as she came up from it. Alice Wake understood that her husband was still alive, that these hauntings were him reaching out, and she could see him because she too had been touched by the dark place. And Alice Wake immediately began planning. 
She observed the hauntings, discovered what Alan was experiencing, and she took action. Alan was failing to write himself out of the dark place. His story was never right. It was never complete. He kept changing it. He kept doing edits and sometimes just whole entire rewrites of the story. The effects of these writings were nudging people's lives towards bright falls. It couldn't go on like this forever. So Alice began assembling videos and images for a fake art exhibit. In these videos, which would be delivered to Alan eventually, she spelled out her suffering, her outlet in her artwork, her desire to show the world the darkness of his world and why she took photos of the hauntings. And she did it goddamn masterfully. She understood that the nature of Alan Wake's writings couldn't continue in a loop. It had to become a spiral. Just overlapping his works, changing minor details, repeating the same things over and over with minor variations. But the horror story was missing something. It was missing her. He couldn't finish it because there was no end to the spiral. The story could only end in darkness or light, destruction or ascension. And he'd written darkness and destruction so many times. So she would intervene and guide him into ascension. What Alice pulls off is best explained during Alan's final trip around the spiral so that everything makes sense. So we'll hold off on that for now. Timelines and you know all that. But Alice Wake turned into a true badass through and through. She assembled her videos and photographs for Alan, everything that would be needed to push him forward. And she returned to Bright Falls. And she plunged from a bluff overlooking Cauldron Lake. She chose to return to the dark place to get Alan out. In 2018, another body came out of Cauldron Lake. Who knows how many unknowns the cult of the tree had quietly taken care of. This was the body of the teacher. Much like the first victim, the dentist, she didn't die of drowning, yet her body was bloated like she had been in the water. She died of a chest wound. Her body had signs of being tied down, but she was found floating in the lake. So she was bloated with long-term water exposure, yet she died of a chest wound, and her body was returned to the water after she had died. Tim Breaker had also been collecting those strange manuscript pages that he found around the lake, but none of them were relevant to these bodies coming out of it. So he just kept collecting them, and he kept them at the station in evidence. There was one in particular that related to Dor, though, and that kept his intrigue quite focused upon the strange man that still haunted his dreams. In 2019, the Hiss invasion within the oldest house began. FBC field agents were widely cut off from their headquarters. Important head figures within the bureau just vanished. Things were really just a mess. Agents and researchers at Bright Falls were widely unsupported for a long time. Even after the hiss were cut off, things were far from stable. The new director would need new heads of staff. The oldest house needed completely cleared before the final lockdown could be lifted. And there was a lot of rebuilding that needed done. However, not long after the hiss were handled, an alert was sent to the FBC in 2019. It shouldn't have been possible for it to have come through the lockdown because the oldest house was still cut off from the outside world, but still, there it was. An altered world event alert in Bright Falls, sent four years early, no doubt the work of Alan Wake himself from within the dark place. Tech was developed to contain paranatural entities, and lights developed to potentially fight off the dark presence were sent to the area for backup. But in reality, they had no idea the power behind the Dark Presence. They really had no idea what it was capable of. The status quo was maintained until 2023. The Cult of the Tree protected Bright Falls, the forests near the lake, and all the small towns in the area. The FBC kept up their experiments and their studies even after Casper Darling vanished. Alice Wake had vanished into the lake to begin her intervention in Alan's story. Tim Breaker kept searching for answers about who the enigmatic Warland Door was. Rose Marigold kept up her many jobs. She had dreams of Alan and occasionally collected manuscript pages with directions for her. 
she would one day aid a hero and help Alan return. Barry Wheeler went to Hollywood to work as a producer and to protect Alan's estate. He ended up getting charmed into joining a paracriminal group called The Blessed, not really realizing what the group actually was. Whoops. Saga Anderson became well-known within the FBI as an agent that could solve the unsolvable. She often worked with FBI agent Alex Casey, a hardened FBI agent that hated the fact that he shared a name with one of Alan Wake's characters. In fact, Alex Casey has quite a few issues with this Wake character. Alan's best-selling Alex Casey books were sort of lifted from the real-life Alex Casey. What Alan may have once upon a time called his inspiration were actually visions, for lack of a better word, of Alex Casey's real life that he took creative liberties with and put into book form. Alan didn't know that he was doing this, though. He believed his imagination brought forth the Alex Casey universe, not, you know, clairvoyant visions of a real person's career that he dramatized. After the famous writer vanished in 2010, Casey took an interest in it from a distance. He kept tabs on what was going on in Bright Falls. So when Tim Breaker contacted the FBI for help in 2023, Alex Casey swooped in on the case. You see, another body had come out of the lake, that of the store owner. He had bruising that showed that he had been tied down. There were odd tattoos on his body. The corpse was incredibly bloated from pre-death water exposure, just like the other bodies, but his heart had been cut out. Sheriff Breaker knew that his department couldn't handle something this strange, this ritualistic and mysterious. So he called the FBI. Alex Casey took the case and he brought the well-respected Saga Anderson as his partner, but he did it with the intention of giving her the lead on the case. She was far better suited to solve this than himself. He would just act as support. He was a pretty stand-up guy. Now, given the foundation of the coming story, Look back at it, look at all these things that we've discussed, and decide for yourself what you think was nudged in this direction by Alan Wake himself. Because remember, at least when it comes to our reality, he can't create something from nothing. His writings, his influence, they can sometimes create probable circumstances over time bring things together. And while there is a lot to talk about when it comes to Alan in the Dark Place, for a little while longer, let's stick to our reality and our characters. Let's progress the storyline a bit more before we really dive into that madness. Someone else emerged from the lake right before FBI agent Saga Anderson and Alex Casey arrived in Bright Falls. Former FBI agent Robert Nightingale. Last seen 13 years prior. After his partner had vanished, Nightingale was tormented. He kept seeing the writer's face in his nightmares. He started drinking constantly. He was fired from the FBI. He was convinced that the man he was seeing in his dreams, the man that would become known as Alan Wake, he was convinced that Alan was the reason for his partner's disappearance. And he wanted to find this man so that the terrible nightmares would stop. After he had arrived in Bright Falls, he became a complete terror shooting wildly at Alan, putting civilians in danger, refusing to answer to local authorities, never disclosing that he was actually no longer an FBI agent. In the end, the darkness claimed him and he was pulled into the lake. This is a glimpse of what victims of the dark place look like when they come out of the lake. Nightingale's body is severely bloated like a corpse that has been in water for several days, but it's been 13 years, and that he's still alive defies explanation. He's confused and he asks for help when he sees a light, but the people looking down on him just see a naked man stumbling around the shore. They leave the area rather than risk a confrontation with him. But there are others here watching, the cult of the tree. Remember, they'd commandeered FBC equipment. 
They knew when things came out of the lake, they were waiting for him with a prepared ritual site. As he stumbles about, Nightingale is tormented by flashes of Scratch, now a rabid, wild thing of rage. Nightingale will never be free of the dark place because it's within him now, and in time, he too will turn into a feral Taken. As he runs, he hears snarling and snapping. The swirling, dizzying sounds of the dark place are all around him even here. He sees a shadowy man on the path who proclaims, oh fuck, he's here, and then vanishes. What Nightingale sees is not pure vision of the world. It's not what other people see. He sees a nightmare come to life. He has only one path ahead to follow, one way forward. He will be easy prey for the cult of the tree, who waits for him at the top of the trail. The figures that walk towards him seem evil, shrouded in darkness. Nightingale has no defense. He doesn't even have the dignity of clothing. He tries to run away, only to be shot like he's an animal being hunted. He doesn't get much farther before another masked person jumps at him from a campsite and stabs Robert Nightingale repeatedly. But this won't be the end of his suffering. Nightingale may not realize it, but when he came out of the lake, he was already a dead man walking. There's very little goodness in the story that he's a part of now. This is a horror story. Bloodied and dying, he is restrained to a picnic table by the cult of the tree. Presumably, it is Ilmo Koskala himself that leads the proceedings. He proclaims their reason for being, they watch in the night. Then he plunges the knife into the chest of Robert Nightingale. This is how the Taken are killed. He reaches into the cavity and he rips out Nightingale's heart, killing his physical body, but the darkness must be killed too. They need to put the clicker into Nightingale's chest and flick the switch, just like Alan Wake had done to Barbara Jagger 13 years prior. But here is a complication. Outsiders intrude upon the ritual. The two people who saw Nightingale stumbling around earlier, they found the ritual site at the height of the bloody violence. The cultists flee the area, their anonymity must be maintained and the site is compromised. They flee without finishing their ritual on the body of former FBI agent Robert Nightingale. That another body washed up right as the FBI was arriving in town almost feels planned. Agents Saga Anderson and Alex Casey are en route to Cauldron Lake, to the newest murder site. Casey in particular knows a bit about Alan Wake, but neither of them actually know what happened here 13 years ago. They're FBI, not FBC. Publicly, Alan Wake disappeared while on vacation with his wife, presumed drowned. The two agents are colleagues, but they're familiar and friendly with one another as well. Saga's daughter, Logan, is talking to her mother over the phone, telling her about the newest episode of Night Springs, and asks her mother to tell Casey not to brood so much. Saga's husband and daughter are across the country in the state of Virginia, far away from the weirdness of Bright Falls. Casey makes his gratitude known to Saga, that she's here with him. He knows that he doesn't have the chops to solve this alone, and Saga Anderson has a talent for finding the truth. So during the drive to the murder scene, he informs her that she will be taking the lead on this case. The first of the local police that they meet is Officer Mulligan. His partner Thornton is up at the murder site, and these two are deeply ingrained in the cult of the tree. They know what happened to Nightingale, of the dark presence, the taken, the FBC stations around the lake. They were both around back in 2010 when the Alan Wake AWE took place. They're also responsible for a very serious murder that took place quite recently. They shot a woman named Monica Thompson. They thought that she was a taken. Mulligan was the one who pulled the trigger. They dumped her body in the Huatari well at the nearby hamlet of Watery, intent on just covering up the killing. A certain writer knew, knows, or nudged this tragedy. Their guilt over this would make them part of the story to come. 
But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's just stay in this reality for a while. Before checking down to the site, Saga enters her mind palace, as she calls it. She believes this to be her version of the mind palace technique. The form that her mind place takes is their makeshift office back at Bright Falls at the lodge that they're staying at. It takes this form so that she can be more connected with her present environment. She internally reviews the three known murder victims who have emerged from the lake, ponders over the similarities and the differences, and reflects on the profile of the killer. She will come here often to put things together, clues from her case, connect people and events, think through challenging ideas, review manuscript pages, rewatch TV spots that she finds, and very importantly, profile people involved. The two agents poke at one another as they go down the broken steps of the path. Once upon a time, this place was freely traveled by visitors and locals. But after 2010, the FBC showed up and put up the fences. Now it's just kind of sad. It's a dead place. The only people who go through are officials or people who break in. Campsites, rental cabins, even the general store have slowly been overtaken by nature. Officer Thornton greets them on the path and takes them up to the murder site. He seems nice enough when face to face. Easy to talk to, interested in their jobs, quick to make a joke with them. But there's not much light conversation to be made once they reach the murder site. Nightingale is still on the table, untouched since his murder, not even a tarp to protect his body from the rain. For as big of an asshole as Robert Nightingale was, and he was a big asshole, he didn't deserve this. No one deserves this. Who knows what he experienced in the dark place, in the lake? And as soon as he was out, he was murdered on a picnic table. Saga does her inspection of the corpse, immediately finding that this was a ritualistic killing. Yet the devil is in the details. He was alive when he came out of the lake, regardless of the bloated state of his body. His wrists and ankles are bruised from the straps, his chest was cut open, his heart removed, much like the other three that came before him. Around the site are beer bottles, a camera, leftover trash, like multiple people were setting up here to wait. Multiple killers. This wasn't a party or anything like that, but it was a coordinated murder site. Thornton tells them of the dead man's identity and all that they officially know about Robert Nightingale. He came here 13 years prior, was completely off the deep end in paranoia chasing a boogeyman, and then he vanished. It's kind of a surprise, especially to Alex Casey. The FBI never really knew what happened to Nightingale, and a disgraced FBI agent's body showing up as soon as the modern FBI agents are in the area is just a very weird coincidence. And though there's a lot unknown, Saga settles on why here, why now, as the guiding questions moving forward. Then she begins her mind place profiling, a truly spectacular gift from her bloodline. It sets Saga apart as an agent, though she doesn't really understand just how unique and powerful it really is. It allows her to get into the mind of a subject, even a dead person, apparently. She's able to pull answers from them within her mind place. She pieces things together, her clues, finds questions that she needs answered, and poses those unknowns to whoever she is mentally profiling. Sometimes the answers aren't really clear. Sometimes they're echoes of past conversations. Sometimes they are direct answers. It's heavily influenced by the subject's mental state, their fortitude, and their own true knowledge on the topic and their memories. She profiles Nightingale, asking how he got here and why he was chosen as a victim. And she's told that he came up from the lake that is not a lake. Nightingale riddles her bits about the clicker, the ritual, the process, and she pieces together that he was a component of something. Well, if he came out of the lake, then they need to get down there and take a look. There are signs of FBC presence all over the place. They're really not trying to hide themselves. They're really just hiding what they're doing here. 
Nearby is a road leading to the lake house. There's an intercom over the gate and an unnamed FBC agent answers her ring. But no one is allowed through, not even the FBI, because something has happened at the lake house. The station leads aren't available and there will be no further questions on the matter. That's sadly a mystery that we'll need to wait for another time. Saga shares her thoughts on Nightingale to Casey as they go down the trail together, down to a spot called the Witch's Ladle. And there's a strange obstacle in their way. A large tree stands over the path, but it's like a boulder is wedged in the base of the tree, blocking the path down to the shoreline. But this is the path that Nightingale had to have taken to come up from the lake, and his footprints are still visible in the mud. How did he get past or through the boulder? Furthermore, there's a page on the ground, written with a typewriter, with some handwritten edits scratched into it. Casey immediately identifies it specifically as a manuscript page, like a draft of a story. But this page, it's about them, about Nightingale, his murder, their arrival, and what she was doing at this very moment reading this page. But neither Saga nor Alex Casey are mentioned by name. They're referred to as them and they. Undoubtedly, somebody was playing a game with them specifically. Nearby is an old sign that relays the fable of the witch's ladle. It's a wild tale, local folklore. Yet the woman resembles who we would know as Barbara Jagger. The Dark Presence once wore her face and used her body to try breaking free of the Dark Place. After she and Tom Zane the Poet vanished back in 1970, she became a bit of a local cryptid. To stop the Dark Presence back then, Tom disappeared into the lake, writing himself out of existence. Yet there were still bits of him that existed in the collective consciousness. Over the following decades, Tom the Poet was instead remembered as Thomas Zane the eccentric filmmaker. That could be because of his own final writings, or perhaps the influences of Alan Wake himself writing in the dark place, though there are a few that remember Tom as a poet, not a filmmaker. People like Cynthia Weaver, Alan Wake, the FBC director Jesse Faden. But anyways, staying on topic. Barbara Jagger, or The Witch, has a hole in her chest where her heart should be. Saga and Casey need to get back to Bright Falls to properly inspect Nightingale's body in the morgue. But that sign will be a good spot to remember. It's more than it seems. The entire area is freakishly flooded, so she can't proceed down the path anymore anyways. It's time to get back to Bright Falls so they can see what the corpse of Robert Nightingale can teach them. The sheriff is waiting for them at the Oh Dear Diner, as are the folks who interrupted the ritual murder of Nightingale. Bright Falls is still a cute, picturesque town, but there's a sad emptiness about it, too. It's a common fate for most small towns, isn't it? If they don't expand and keep up with the world, then businesses and young folks, they just leave. There's still enough life here to keep the town going, but this place hasn't exactly thrived over the last decade. And there's some weirdness about it. Like, amidst those just living their lives are background actors filling in empty spots. It lends a bit of uncanny valley to the town. Sheriff Tim Breaker is certainly not out of place, though. He's glad that these two are here. He recognizes that his department needs help. While Casey steps aside to compare notes with the sheriff, Saga goes inside to question the witnesses, the bookers. They're a bit combative with Saga's questions. Apparently, officers Mulligan and Thornton were treating them like suspects, so things were rocky between the bookers and the local cops. Tammy Booker says that they were at the lake doing research on the writer Alan Wake, who vanished there some 13 years ago. Tammy is a true crime writer and wanted on-site details for her next book. Ed Booker seems a bit more disturbed by the whole thing. He describes a nude man coming out of the lake, acting strange, and then they heard shooting and ran across people in deer masks cutting into the naked man with knives. They called themselves the cult of the tree. 
Tammy is a bit more calm about the whole thing, but Ed is clearly still freaked out by it. She cuts him off when he's about to explain that they found something, but Saga picks up on it. Via her mind place, she pieces together their story with Nightingales. They really were there just studying the location for a book. And through profiling, pries out of Tammy that she has something related to the cult, specifically a necklace. And it really catches Tammy off guard when Saga knows that. How could she have possibly known that it was a necklace that one of them dropped? It's a symbol of the cult. Two triangles overlapping, pointing up. It's a bit of a play on the FBC emblem on the files that the Koskala brothers stole. The FBC logo features one triangle pointed down, reminiscent of the board in the astral plane. But they have two triangles pointing up, so eat shit, FBC. And now comes the undeniably strange and inexplicable. Everything Saga and Casey have encountered up to this point could possibly be explained by some sort of logic, but not Rose Marigold. She recognizes Saga Anderson, who, remember, hasn't been here since she was practically a newborn and has no knowledge that she was actually born around here. Her mother Freya didn't tell Saga about her family. And now, Saga lives in Virginia, but Rose talks to Saga like she knows her. She seems surprised that Saga is back after what had happened to her daughter. Rose insists that they know each other, and Saga insists that no, they don't. But she still asks Rose what she meant, what happened to her daughter, and Rose claims that Logan drowned. She must not remember because she's blocking out her traumatic memories like on a TV show. Rose is really not socially attuned. She's easily excited and doesn't really have a filter, but she is genuine. She has memories of Saga, of her daughter. So, you know, she's not the weird one here. Saga clearly is. And even if Saga knows that Rose is wrong, for a parent to hear someone talk about their kid that way, that has to be rattling. Saga was only in the diner to talk to the bookers, so she gets a move on, away from Rose Marigold. Sheriff Breaker walks with them to the police station, which is only like a block away. It takes all of about 90 seconds for them to reach it from the diner. The morgue is in the basement of the station, connected to a funeral home, and the only coroner available to them rotates between towns, so they're on their own for now. Luckily, Saga has training on post-mortem examinations, so she can lead the process. Not a lot gets cleared up though. The questions that they started with at the murder site just kind of deepen. Like, they saw that he had tattoos under his skin, but there are also words tattooed onto his heart. But they can't make out any of the words. It's like they're smudged and backwards. There's also something in his chest, another manuscript page. This time, the page actually names her, but it only does it in the handwritten edits. Like, she was added to the story after the fact. Wink. The edits on the page say that light hurts them, the Taken, Nightingale. They couldn't see her in the light. It made them vulnerable. The unedited typewritten parts say that Nightingale didn't have a heart and yet he was killing. Tim Breaker speaks up because he's collected weird pages like this around the lake over the years. He searched for the man in his dreams, which led him to Warlandor, which led him to moving to Bright Falls, which led to him taking over his cousin Sarah's job eventually as sheriff of the town. It's a stunning series of coincidences that reek of the influence of a certain writer over the years. And those nudges were noticed. Tim Breaker was noticed because the Anderson family, they aren't the only ones that Wake's writings won't influence. Others exist outside of it. Before Tim can give Saga those pages, Warland Dorr intervenes and takes him. Tim Breaker is just gone. Only one manuscript page is allowed to remain. Nightingale sits up. The manuscript page from within his chest cavity is coming true. Nightingale turns violent and begins killing officers. 
Saga and Casey get the hell knocked out of them, and Nightingale begins hunting down the dark halls. The lights in the room kept her out of his vision. She remembers the writing on that page, and she takes it as directions. Light makes you invisible. Light makes them vulnerable. Something is inside Nightingale, and he will continue to kill. She spends a very tense minute standing in the solitary light of the morgue while the deranged, bloated man searches for her. Her only shield also leaves her incredibly vulnerable. She needs to hold onto her flashlight and get the gun in the hallway after he passes. As soon as she is out of the safe haven of the light, Nightingale begins to pursue. Thankfully, the edits on that page were truthful. A few shots end the encounter, but not because Saga killed him, he was already dead. Someone wasn't done with Nightingale, he just vanishes. Seems that she and Casey were somehow the only ones who survived, and they both buy into this being supernatural instantly, with surprising calmness about it. They have no idea what forces are at play, no idea what happened to Tim Breaker, and their best theory right now is that the Cult of the Tree is performing rituals to create monsters. That page that Tim Breaker left behind. It's more foreshadowing, more guiding in a very direct way. The edits once again name her specifically, going back to Cauldron Lake, where Nightingale was at and yet he was beyond her reach past something called an overlap. The edits at the bottom detailed Saga learning and performing a ritual to get through that overlap, and then she could pursue Nightingale and stop the monster, this thing known as a Taken. Mulligan and Thornton arrive as they're leaving. The cult of the tree will all be made well aware of what's happened here because of them. And upstairs, everything seems fine. No one is aware that there are dead officers downstairs and that the sheriff is just gone. Alex Casey calls headquarters to inform them of the situation and to request backup, but... Well, it won't be the FBI that's arriving to help. As they travel back to the lake, Casey comes clean with Saga about Nightingale. Seems that he didn't want to talk about it in front of Thornton, and after what they just went through, well, rumors of the supernatural happening here might not be so wild. Or it could be that he just didn't remember. Casey tells her about the writer Alan Wake, that Nightingale was hunting him down. Alan Wake wrote books starring a detective named Alex Casey. What Alan thought was inspiration was a clairvoyance of sorts, peering into the life of the real Alex Casey, taking creative liberties to make his crime thriller series. And here is where something truly strange happens, and yet neither of them are aware of it. Casey starts talking about a series of murders that took place 10 years ago in New York City. But the details that Casey gives aren't really what happened. They're what he suddenly remembers them being. He says that it was a cult that did it. A cult that started in 2013. A cult that, in this version of the story, worshipped Alan Wake and wanted to bring him back. Not a cult that, you know, hunted and killed anything that came out of the lake and was the absolute enemy of Alan Wake. You know, not a version of the cult of the tree with creative liberties taken with it. I say that with complete sarcasm, by the way. According to the agent, this cult, they taunted the real FBI agent, Alex Casey, with fragments of Alan Wake's books, sections that described murders that this cult was now trying to recreate. He says those 2013 cult murders were what led him into looking into Alan Wake's story. While the Anderson family exists outside the influence of what is happening within the Dark Place, Alex Casey does not, and Saga has no reason to believe that Casey is stating anything other than fact. At the lake are a couple extra vehicles, a motorcycle and a nondescript white van, so there may be other folks out on the trail. While they walk, Casey asks Saga for toy ideas for Logan's upcoming birthday, so he knows and remembers that Logan is alive and home with her father in Virginia. And Saga wonders aloud, what sort of a cult calls themselves a cult? 
And remember what Casey had said to her in the car about the murder cult in New York? Well, he says that cults don't call themselves cults, so it would be strange if a cult in New York actually did call themselves a cult, like the cult of the word, right? At an FBC monitoring station, they come across a new face, Ilmo Koskala, twin brother of Yako Koskala, local entrepreneur, troublemaker, tour guide, and unbeknownst to the FBC and the FBI, local leader of the cult of the tree, alongside his brother. Ilmo has guided an FBC technician here. Now, of note, when Ilmo greets Saga, he does so as though they're strangers. He gives his name and he says, nice to meet you. The FBC technician, Stephen, he's making repairs to the station. The wires behind the incredibly thick metal panel have been frayed and damaged. What Ilmo says is the work of raccoons, which, yeah, sure bud, very charismatic and delightful, but raccoons, my dude. Stephen says that there's something in the wiring that isn't supposed to be there, and Ilmo seems to be in damage control mode, trying to downplay anything suspicious that Stephen may find. Inside the station is documentation from Stephen, he is on to the tampering. He knows that someone has been rerouting transmissions, but he can't say for sure what's going on. It sounds like the cult of the tree has been getting kind of sloppy as of late and the feds are on to their activity. Water has been continuing to rise within the witch's ladle. The original crime scene is almost flooded. According to that manuscript page that Tim Breaker left behind, there should be something around here to teach her a ritual to get through something called an overlap where Nightingale is now. She finds his tracks and the two FBI agents decide to split up, and Saga checks down into the flooded ladle alone. From there, she loses Nightingale's trail, but she can feel him nearby. She can reach out to him here, profile him, draw out answers. Nightingale reveals that the tree was a threshold, a spot in this world that connects to the dark place where they meet, where they overlap. Saga finds his footprints there again, this time going into the tree, and a dark orb is covering something. Like the edits in the manuscript page taught her, she burns it away with light and is rewarded with yet another page. And this one has no edits, no scratches, no changes, and it mentions her by name. Before, the only time that she was ever mentioned was in the handwritten edits, which helped her to figure things out. But this page is different. It's like somebody else wrote it in its entirety. It directs her to find a fuse near the witch's hut up the trail to get the lights on and that there she will find another manuscript page. And sure enough, up the trail is a dark little cabin, and once she's inside, it proves to be a safe haven where she can take a breather. And there is a new page to be read. And just like the last one that she found, there are no edits on this one, no handwritten inserts, and she is again mentioned by name in the typing. It's more directions, how to perform the ritual to open the Cauldron Lake overlap. She would need Nightingale's literal heart, to read the words upon it and then push the heart through the hole in the witch's chest, that sign that she saw earlier, the hole in her chest where her heart should be. Saga seeks answers directly from Nightingale via profiling to find his missing heart. It too had vanished from the morgue. She has to demand the answer from him and he reveals that his heart is in the general store in an old freezer, or at least now it is. This place hasn't been used for 13 years now. Campers and visitors would come here regularly to buy things that they needed for their trips, and now it's just molding, empty, falling apart. And she's not alone here. In the back room is one of the cults of the tree who's been overtaken by the Dark Presence. They are now a Taken. It's hard to say if it's a true human being or a copy of a victim, 
someone taken before by the lake, but it dishes out very real damage. They were probably one of the cultists present at the Nightingale ritual murder. He seems to very much loathe whoever was playing cards here that night. Saga will have to contend with these taken as she goes. There's no longer a facade of safety around the lake or the town. Make them vulnerable with light, shoot them until they stay down, and just try not to think too much about it. The heart really is in the gross old freezer, protected by another of those dark orbs she has to burn away. And she can read the writing on it now, too. There are words that she'll need to complete the ritual at the witch's sign near the overlap. She heads back on her own. Casey is still trying to find his way to her location. She shoots her way up to the sign and recites the ritual words that she's learned. The wave crashed on the far side of the mirror. I brought you the heart, witch. Show me the terror. She places the heart into the witch's chest, and the overlap opens up to her. She had expressed excitement at being a part of this case. All the weirdness drew her in, intrigued and challenged her. Once she's through the overlap, she's completely alone, no way to radio out, and she didn't wait for Casey to arrive before going in. The darkness, Scratch, and by extension Nightingale are very aware of her presence. She hears her daughter Logan calling out for her, calling for help, but she can't find her. The dark presence overtakes, dominates, and controls by using a victim's fear against them. Saga is experiencing just a drop that is the ocean of that darkness, and the clearest way to break her is to use her daughter against her. She has to pass through the overlap again. It's like she's looping through it, yet it's a vision of a man that she sees this time. He too is asking for help. Another manuscript page is in this loop, detailing how Nightingale went into the lake. After the Altered World event ended in 2010, all who had been touched by the darkness of the lake were called back to it, and they all went in to suffer through the looping, changing, fading echoes of the writer's dream. When the writer woke and began to write again, their story would change. It was a sad fate for those who couldn't escape the dark presence. The next pass through the overlap is darker, highlighted in that horrible red, and it's a different path. Nightingale is nearer now, speaking broken thoughts, pushed on by what seems to be rage, but they're not in the same place together yet. She must go on to the next loop and see if he's there. At the overlap, another vision of that man. He's trying to tell her something, but only escape and danger make it through, followed by flashes of what looks like perhaps a city street or a train station. This place is different again. There's a small waterfall and Nightingale's FBI badge on the bank. He's getting closer now, but he doesn't attack. She's not quite in the right place yet. Nightingale is growling about something called the clicker. He wants to be shown the clicker. Before the next overlap pass-through, Saga clearly sees a vision of train tracks, perhaps a subway system. When next she exits, Nightingale is there. This is where they will meet, where they will haunt one another. Nightingale's speed defies explanation, and he's highly aggressive, but the same rule applies to him as all other Taken. Make him vulnerable with light, and then keep shooting until he doesn't get back up. But Robert Nightingale continues fighting, pursuing, and speaking even as his body is starting to fall apart, even as his intestines are starting to pour out. He tries to cleave Saga down. It takes several shots from high-power weaponry to stop him. With the hopefully final death of Nightingale, darkness begins to recede, and Saga sees that man again, this time more clearly, yet their attempts to speak are disjointed and faded. She tells him her name and that she's at Cauldron Lake right now. He says something about danger and the dark presence, and then it's gone. The overlap is closed. Saga is standing on the shoreline of the lake. The waters have receded with the decline of the dark presence's power. 
We've only told one side of the story so far. We've barely touched on the writer himself. It's time we put these stories together, but that will require us going into Cauldron Lake. We must see a loop in motion, know why it's called a spiral, and how the ever-bending timeline and rules within the Dark Place fits together with the reality of those in Bright Falls. When next we meet, we need to talk about Mr. Door, the being called Zane, and Alan. But don't worry, there will be helpers along the way. Tarinaa 